You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series, I Am, examining the I Am statements of Jesus. Today's scripture reading is John 8, 48 through 58. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. The Jews responded to him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say, I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. Great to be with you. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, one of your pastors here at Sojourn Church Midtown and delighted as always to be with you and to serve and to hear you sing and to share this time together uh, in this worship service. Well, the first glimpse I ever had of Spider-Man was when I was about four years old. Now, some of you may never have heard of what I'm going to describe here, but when I was about four years old, there was a television program called The Electric Company that had a Spider-Man segment in it. A few of you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes, The Electric Company with Spider-Man in it. That was my first encounter with Spider-Man, and I was hooked. I got a Spider-Man poster to put on my wall. I got everything Spider-Man that I possibly could. I fell in love with Spider-Man, and to the best of my my knowledge at that time, there was only one Spider-Man. There was just the one Spider-Man, the Peter Parker Spider-Man. That was the only one there was. But over the past few years, what we have recognized that is in this Spider-Man story, there are lots of Spider-People, all different Spider-People all over. And some of you may have watched across the Spider-Verse recently and found out that there are way more. And I loved it. It was amazing. Greatest Spider-Man movie ever. Miles Morales, amazing. This is a great one. So if you haven't seen it, no spoilers or anything like that. But let's just say, there's a lot of spider people, okay? We can just, we can just agree on that and recognize that. There's even a Spider-Man Tyrannosaurus Rex. There's a cowboy Spider-Man. There's a cat Spider-Man. There's all sorts of different spider people when you go across the Spider-Verse. It makes for an amazing spider story. Great spider story. Perfect spider story. But here's the problem. Sometimes people want to do the same thing with Jesus of having a lot of different Jesuses. 
Because you see, the way it is with the Spider-Verse is whatever Spider-type person you want to be a fan of, you can just be a fan of. Because there's all sorts of different ones. They're all across. There's hundreds of them, and you can be a fan of whichever type you like. The problem is that some people try to do that with Jesus. They want to say, you know what? There's a certain type of Jesus that I really like, that I really want to worship. This is my Jesus, and I want that kind of Jesus, and that's the kind of Jesus I'm going to worship. And they want to go across the Jesus verse, okay? They want to go across the Jesus verse, and they want in each of these different realities to be able to have the Jesus that I want. There is, we could say, the the merely human Jesus, we might say. The merely human Jesus is what many Americans believe in. According to a recent survey, 46% of Americans say Jesus sinned. About 26% said Jesus is nothing more than a spiritual leader. That's this merely human Jesus. That's obviously a popular Jesus in our culture. There's a few weeks from now, there's another Jesus that's going to become really popular in a few places and in a few churches. And that is what I'm going to just call American Jesus, okay? The Jesus is suddenly going to get plastered right up there with an American flag and a cross, red, white, and blue around July 4th. But among people who think that Jesus and America just have a real tight relationship and Jesus is all on America's side and they want to plaster Jesus, that's, a, that's another Jesus. That's not the Jesus that's described in Scripture. That's, that's a different Jesus, this American Jesus that some people are going to worship. And this blue-eyed, super-buff Jesus that is there, that they're going to put on that, that's another Jesus. But there's also, we find in our culture, what we might call a progressive Jesus. I hear this from people who will say, you know what, the Jesus I believe in would let me do this, fill in the blank. The Jesus I believe in, he would let me do this. He would be okay with letting me leave behind God's good design for our creation as male and female, a progressive Jesus. Now, I could go on, but I hope you get the idea that there are a lot of different visions and images of Jesus that people have, and they kind of want to go across the Jesus verse and choose the Jesus they want. Choose the one that fits with their affiliations, with their preferences. But the problem is, there is one Jesus. we got to get that Jesus right. It's great when we do this with Spider-Man. It's not great when we're doing this in how we understand Jesus. It's a great concept for superheroes. It's a terrible way to do your theology. And so what I want us to unpack and to think about today, and actually we're going to do this throughout this series, is to think about what does Jesus say about his own self and who does he declare that he is? Now, here's the good news. It's not like this is a new thing. It's not like this is a new thing that somehow in the 20th and 21st centuries, people have gone around coming up with other ideas of Jesus. It's something that Christians have faced all the way through the ages. If we were to go back to the second century, there was a group of people in the second century that were called the Docetists. Now, the Docetists said, Jesus is divine. He's truly God, but he only seems human. He only appears to be human. He's not really human. And so what Christians recognize is, no, we can't make our own Jesus. 
We, we develop an idea of Jesus not from our own inclinations, but rather we develop it from what he says and from what the word of God says. And so Christians pushed back against that. And one of the ways they did that is what we know as the Apostles' Creed. And in the words of the Apostles' Creed, hear these words, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now you notice in there how it emphasizes the physical nature of Jesus. What are they doing right there? They're pushing back against that false idea by saying, no, Jesus was truly and authentically human, just as the Word of God says that he is. But, but a century or two later, you had almost the opposite type of an idea that got popular. There was a guy named Arius. Now, Arius was another false teacher. He was a smart false teacher, by the way. He made up songs to be able to teach his theology. But Arius, he was going around saying Jesus was not truly eternally divine. So he's like, Jesus is human, but he's not truly and eternally divine. Once again, Christians pushed back against that and said, no, that's not true either. And they came up with what we call the Creed of Nicaea, where it says that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. So in each of these, what we've got is people coming up with different visions of Jesus, and Christians pushed back and said, no, that's not what we do. We don't develop our own vision of Jesus. Augustine said a, few, a couple of, about a century after the Council of Nicaea, he said it this way, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. It's just yourself. You're just believing in yourself. If you skip across the Jesus first and choose the one you like, it's not Jesus you believe in. It's yourself, ultimately, that you believe in because Jesus is known through his words in the Gospels and in the Scriptures, or he is not truly known at all. And throughout this sermon series, we're going to be asking the question, what did Jesus say about who he is? And that's an important question to ask. Because if you get Jesus wrong, it's not Jesus you get wrong only, but it's also yourself. You will never truly understand who you are until you understand who Jesus is. You will never truly understand the nature of your sin until you understand the sinless one. You will never truly understand your own limits till you re recognize that in Jesus, the limitless one became flesh and dwelled among us. You'll never get you right until you get Jesus right. You will never truly know who you are until you know who Jesus is and you grow to know who Jesus is when you abide in the words that he said. So that's what we're going to be looking at in this morning. We're going to be looking at who you are and who Jesus is in John chapter 8. And you're going to see three simple truths that I want you to get today. Number one, we were slaves, but the son's word is freedom. We were dead, but the Son's word is life. And not only that, but thirdly, Jesus is I am, and his word is enough. Those are the three truths that I want you to get today. So to do that, let's back up just a little bit from what was read earlier and pick up this text in John chapter 8 and verse 30. Hear these words. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. And Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you're really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Ah, we're descendants of Abraham, they answered him. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you'll become free? 
Jesus responded, ah, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. Now it says here that they believed in Jesus. And you're going to find out as you look through this text that though they believed in Jesus, they did not believe in Jesus as he really was. They believed in something that they wanted to trust in, that they wanted to follow about who he was and did not believe in him as he truly was. It seems like they wanted a human king, a human Messiah who would release them from the rule of the Romans and that's what they were wanting from Jesus. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that their faith is fickle. He knows that it's false at this point. And that's why Jesus said to them, if you abide in my words, then you're really my disciples. Why is he saying that? He says, because you need to stick with me and listen to what I have to say. So wait for it, wait for it, wait for what I have to say, because you may decide that you don't quite believe in me after all, because you're believing in your own imagination and not in what I am saying. So abide in my words, stay in my words. There's more truth coming, remain in all that I say. And he says, if you do, if you abide in my words, you will be truly free. As soon as Jesus says that, they're like, ah, Jesus, we don't really need that. We don't really need free. We don't need to be set free because, you see, we're Abraham's descendants. We came from Abraham because we can trace our family tree. We go on to genealogy.com, go all the way back to, to Abraham. We can trace it back. We've got all the evidence of that. Because we can do that, then you know what? We don't need to be set free because we've never actually been enslaved. We've, we're free people because we're traced back to Abraham. Now, here's what you see right here. Their identity was in their family. Their identity was in who they were by virtue of Abraham. You see, remember Abraham is the one that God cut a covenant with. He promised descendants and promised he'd bless the world through his descendants. And they said, because we can trace back to that man who had that covenant with God, we are already free. And this is, first off, outwardly absurd. It's outwardly absurd. What I mean by that is to say that even though they may not have technically legally been slaves, they are living under the thumb of the Roman Empire right now. So it's absurd at that level. You're not truly free, but it's also absurd at a deeper level that you know as well. If we're honest, deep inside, we all know we're not free. We're not really free. Just think about it in your own heart right now. Am I truly free from every weight and every effect of sin? Am I truly free completely to be all that God created me to be? Am I 100% free? And if you're honest, you know you're not. You know you're not. There are weights you feel. There are sins you struggle with. None of us are completely free. There is an ache that you feel when you recognize that life is short, that death is real, and there is more you long to do than you can ever get done. You're limited. You're not free completely. Andrew Peterson, a songwriter, puts these words in, in a song day by day and hear them because it captures this. You have never met a single soul 
who didn't feel the curses toll, who didn't wish that death would die, and maybe that's the reason why we just can't get used to being here, where the ticking clock is loud and clear, children of eternity on the run from entropy. We actually are all slaves. Sin has made us slaves. There's the fallenness and the sin of the world around you that has impacted your life. You know that. You've been sinned against by other people, but also just sin and fallenness in the world. It separated us from this life that our souls really long for. And as a result of fallenness, we have limited lives with limited energy and limited knowledge that results in misunderstandings. We have limits to our bodies. We have limits to what we can do that results in emotional and physical struggles. Sometimes that you just feel like you can't even press through. Sin has turned us into slaves, but it's not just the sin around us. It's the sin in us. The sin in us has turned us into slaves, and none of us really wants to admit that. I think if I were to go up to most of you and I would just say, are you a sinner? You'd say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I sin. I sin. And then if I ask, are you a slave to sin? Well, no, I'm not quite a slave to sin. I sin, but I'm not a slave to sin. But you hear what Jesus says? Everybody who sins is a slave to sin. Why is it that we don't want to admit we're a slave to sin? Do you recognize that? None of you really wants to say, I am a slave of sin, but Jesus says you are. Why do we not want to do that? I'll tell you why. Because we don't want to admit we're not in control. We don't want to admit that. We think, yeah, I sinned, but I've got it under control. (laughs) We don't want to admit that we are not completely in control. Why? Well, Tears for Fears, 1985, everybody wants to rule the world. (laughs) We all want to be in charge. We all want to be in control. And none of us wants to admit that I can't rule the world and I am not truly in control. So we don't want to say, I'm a slave to sin. The fact is, every single one of us begins life as a slave to sin. So why is it that sin enslaves us? I want to spend just a few moments on this because we don't see the goodness and the glory of Jesus until we see the darkness and awfulness of our sin. So I want us to think about this. Why does sin enslave us? Well, what's, what is sin? Sin is when something good is taken and distorted. That's what it is. It's a good thing, something that is good and beautiful, that then is distorted, is twisted into something that isn't good anymore. There's a tiny fragment of goodness maybe remaining in it, but sin is taking something good and twisting it or distorting it into something evil. You think about this, that's because Satan can't create, Satan can only corrupt. But Satan can't create anything. Satan can't say, I'm going to make something that's just evil. He can't do that. He doesn't have that capacity. Satan can only corrupt the good things that God has made. He can't create. He can only corrupt. And so sin is this twisting of something that is beautiful and that is good. And here's the thing that happens with sin. We become convinced that that distorted thing, whatever it may be, can satisfy our soul. We become convinced it can satisfy. And we try it. We do it, and then it doesn't satisfy. And do you know what the lie that sin tells us? 
maybe if I do it again, it will satisfy me. Or if I do more, it will satisfy me. And they try it again. And we are so blinded by this that we keep going back to it over and over, though it is something distorted, and we try to satisfy ourselves with it. That is the nature of sin's enslavement. James Hetfield of Metallica, he gets it. In Master of Puppets, taste me, you will see, more is all you need. That's it. He's talking about addiction, but it's true of all sin. Taste me and you will see, more is all you need. Blinded by me, you can't see a thing. That is the nature of sin. That is what it does to us. We keep going back because we think a distorted good can actually satisfy. And it never does, so we go back and try it again, and then it blinds us. 19th century pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon didn't listen to a lot of Metallica, but he got this truth right. He said, sin injures us most by taking from us the capacity to know how much we are injured. Sin injures us most by taking from us the capacity to know we're injured. So that's what sin does. It takes something that is good, distorts it, blinds us, enslaves us, keeps us going back for more. So just think about it. Think about a sin that you keep returning to. Maybe, maybe it's complaining about others, gossiping or complaining about others, saying all the negative things about others. And you keep going, what's going on there? Well, do you know, inside your soul, chances are that what you are deeply desiring and wanting is for somebody to affirm and recognize you. That's what you're wanting. Do you know what? That's not bad. It's not bad for somebody to say, I, I want to hear that, that, that there's something good about me. There's nothing wrong with that in itself. But what do we do? We distort it. We twist it and think, if I can say the negatives about that person, then that elevates me. That sin's insidious work within us that it does. And what message do you need? If that's you, the message you need to hear is that God has already spoken in affirmation and love of you. That you recognize that you, by virtue of you being created, the image of God, you are heaven's handmade masterpiece. That if you have trusted in Jesus, that Jesus himself recognized you on the cross in a way greater than any human being ever could. That is the truth you need. But it gets distorted into something perverse and something that you keep going back to and it never, never, never satisfies you. It just doesn't satisfy. That's what sin does to us. But God in Christ offers infinite pleasure. Do you realize that true and lasting joy? C.S. Lewis, in these familiar words, he said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Psalm 1611, at the right hand of the Lord, there are pleasures forevermore, pleasures that aren't distorted. Go to him, drink the pleasures that he provides, because he offers you perfect joy. 
And so the only answer you see in verse 36 where it says there, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. What he's saying there is find your rest in who Jesus is. Find your rest in that, in the Son. Because you see, a son and a slave are mutually exclusive in a house. If you have a household with a slave, that person's not a son. If you have a household with a son, that person's not a slave. So he says, if you tie your life to the Son, then you leave your enslavement behind when you tie your life to the life of the Son, whom the Son sets free, be free indeed. And the response then is, once again, our father is Abraham. Okay, that's how they respond right here. Our father is Abraham, and because Abraham is our father physically, God must be our father spiritually. Because that's what they're assuming. We are right with God. He is our father spiritually because Abraham is our father physically. And that closes it off right there. That's just if we're Abraham's children, then God is our spiritual father. And that's it. And Jesus said, um, actually, no. Verse 44. Look at what he says in verse 44. He says, you are of your father the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen because you're not from God. And the Jews responded to him, aren't we right? And saying you're a Samaritan and you have a demon, we don't want to talk about what you're talking about, so we're going to talk about something else. I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not even seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Let me give you a relationship pro tip. If you want to win friends and influence people, don't tell them their daddy's the devil, okay? But that's what Jesus does here. He's like, actually, you think your father is God um, and Abraham, it's actually the devil. Um, and he says what Jesus says to them. Your daddy is the devil. But this is actually true of all of us. As long as we are enslaved to sin, our spiritual father is Satan. And what he means by that is that we are actually, in each sin we undertake, we are imitating what the devil did. That's what he's saying. Because what did the devil want? I want to be sovereign. I want to be in God's place. I want to be sovereign in, in, the, in the universe. I want to be the one who takes the place of God. And that's exactly what you and I do every time we run to sin and say this sin is more satisfying than God is. Is we are imitating what Satan himself did. And I love Jesus' response to this. Verse 46, who among you can convict me of sin, Jesus says. Here's what he's saying right there. He says, if any of you can show that I've sinned, then we might consider that I'm wrong. Anybody tell me I've sinned? Anyone? 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 Uh, no. No, we, we really can't point out any sin you've committed, Jesus. And so Jesus just goes right on. He says, you can't convict me of sin. And so if you could do so, then maybe I'm wrong. But if my life is right, Jesus is saying, my words are too. And what do they respond at that point? They say, you're a Samaritan. You have a demon. Now, Samaritan for them would have been an ethnic or racial slur. Jesus doesn't even respond to that one. What he responds to is you're demon-possessed. Jesus says, I'm not demon-possessed. How can I be demon-possessed if you can't even find one single sin that I have committed? How can I possibly be demon-possessed? And then he says, if anyone keeps my word, verse 51, he will never 
see death. And that's where we see the second truth. We're dead, but the son's word is life. So abide in what he says. You want life? It's in abiding in the words of Jesus, true, abundant life. But this is shocking. This is shocking. And so they respond in verses 52 and 53. Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, so did the prophets. Now you say, if anyone keeps my words, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Are you greater than the prophets who died? Who is it that you are claiming to be? He doesn't directly answer it, but they're saying, look, Abraham and the prophets are in the grave. How can you possibly be greater than them? And Jesus' response is, is, I'm not even glorifying myself. I'm not seeking my own glory. Now, he could have, but he chose not to. He chose to release that seeking of his glory and of receiving all the glory he deserved in him being on earth. He chose not to receive or be recognized at the glory that he was. But he says, I'm not even seeking my own glory. My father's going to glorify me, but I'm not seeking it. But what he goes on from there to say is that I'm waiting on my father to reveal who I am. But Abraham, he saw me and he jumped for joy when he did. (laughs) Abraham saw me coming and Abraham rejoiced when he saw me coming. What Jesus is saying here is Abraham's body may still be in the grave, but he is alive and I've met him. I know him. He rejoiced in me. And then he says, my word is life. Whoa, that's shocking. Like, I've, I, I've known Abraham. Abraham has known me. I've seen Abraham. Abraham has seen me. This is shocking to them. So Jesus is building this up, and then he says something even more shocking. Verse 56, he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then in verse 57, the Jews, it says, replied, You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Jesus is I am, and his word is enough. Now, when Jesus says here, I am, with nothing after it, just says, I am, doesn't say I am and add anything to it, no description after it, just I am, That's boom, mic drop moment right there. I mean, he didn't have a mic because they weren't invented yet. But if Jesus had had a mic, he would have dropped it right there. Boom. Before Abraham was, I am. And here's why. When they would have heard this term, I am, right there, they would have heard an echo of Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 4 where it says, I am the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. They would have heard an echo of, of, of Isaiah 43, 13 where it says, from now on, I am. They would have heard an echo of Isaiah 48, 12 that says, listen, O Jacob, listen, O Israel, I am. And in all of that, they would have heard an echo of the text that Jamal preached last week from, from Exodus chapter 3 that said, I am that I am. I am that I am. They would have heard all of that. And they recognized what Jesus just did. Jesus just declared that the God you followed in the Old Testament, the God that was made known to Abraham, the God who rescued the Israelites from Egypt, that God, it's me. I am God in human flesh. And when they heard that, they lifted up stones to try to kill him because that is blasphemy, unless, of course, it's true. 
utter blasphemy unless it happens to be true. They've gone a long ways from verse 30. Back in verse 30, they believed in him. They believed. Now they want to kill him. They've turned from believing in him, but not truly believing in him. What they are believing in verse 30 is who they want him to be, not who he truly was. Now that they find out who he truly is, they find out who he really is, they pick up stones and they want to kill him. They want to kill him. And in the end, they and ultimately we, we all killed him. Not by stoning him to death in a temple, by him hanging on a cross on a hill, on the mountain of the skull. And Jesus died, and on that cross, he took the punishment for all of our enslavement to sin. All of the death we have brought into the world, he took the punishment upon himself. For every person who would trust in him, he took the wrath we deserve as our substitute. But the one who is I am cannot be kept in a grave. When you're I am, the grave has no power. When you're I am, the cross cannot defeat you. When you are I am, nothing in all of creation can stand against you because you're the one who brought creation into being in the first place. I am cannot be held down. And so that claim that seemed so blasphemous before Abraham was I am, it was proved to be true. And that's what it means to call Jesus I am. That's what it means to see him as the great I am. But here's the thing I want you to see in this, is that if you are one who is trusting Jesus as the I am, if you are following Jesus as the I am, if that's you, you are no longer a slave. <laughs> You've already been set free. You are no longer dead. You've already been made alive. You are already free and alive. And so what we're asking when we're, when we're talking about what do I do in response to this, what we are recognizing is act like what God has already made you. You're already free. There's nothing you can do to earn that. You're already alive. There was nothing you did to make that happen. You are free and alive in Christ. So live like it. Act like it. Act like what God has already made you. Act like what God has already done. Act like you really are somebody who has been made new by the great I am. That's what we're called to. So what do we do with this? To live out who we actually are, I want to give you three simple truths. Jesus is I am. Find your identity in him. Jesus is I am. Find your identity in him. Remember this text, no matter what Jesus said to them, they had the same response. We are Abraham's children. We are Abraham's children. We are children. I am Groot. I am Groot. It's like the same thing. Repeat over and over. We are Abraham's children. We are Abraham's children every single time. And what that lets you know is that's where they were finding their identity. They were finding their identity in being Abraham's children. Now, here's this. Hear this. It wasn't bad that they were Abraham's children. That wasn't bad. 
But it was bad for them to find their identity in it because they'd taken something good and distorted it and made it their identity. That's what was going wrong in this. And I want to just challenge you. Where's your identity? Where's your identity? If your identity is anywhere other than Jesus, it will not satisfy. And if you're wondering, I don't know what my identity is. Let me toss out some thoughts for you. Ask yourself, if I wasn't this, fill in the blank, or if I lost this, fill in the blank, I just couldn't go on. If I wasn't this role, this type of person, this position, whatever it might be, if I wasn't this, I just couldn't go on. Or if I lost this that's in my life, I just couldn't go on. Behold your identity. That's your identity. You're saying, this is the thing that if I don't have this, I just can't go on. That is your identity. And it may even be something you're hoping for for the future. Ask yourself this. If I didn't get this in the future, is there anything that I would say? If I don't get this, I don't know if I want to keep going or not yourself, it may be that you're looking forward to a spouse at some point in the future. And if somebody were to tell you that's never going to happen, you'd be like, I, I just don't really want to go on. If you want any children in the future, say, if I, if I don't have that, I don't want to go on. Or a particular degree you're striving for, a particular financial status you're striving for, a particular job you really, really want. What is it? And if you say, I look at that, and if I don't get that someday, if I knew that I would never get that, I don't know if I'd want to go on. Behold, your identity. That is your identity. And if our identity is in anything other than Christ, it will not satisfy. Find your identity in who you are in Jesus. Find your identity there. Second truth I want you to get. It's so simple, but we need to hear it. Jesus is the I am, and he's better than your sin. He's better. At the very most basic level with sin, we are saying this seems more satisfying than Jesus is. But no, Jesus really is better than your sin. It is. Sin is not a minor issue. And there may be in your life, areas of your life that you've been struggling with sin, you've just kind of given up on that. You're like, that one's just always going to be with me. The best I can do is kind of keep it under control so that nobody else knows about it, keep it under, under certain constraints, and I'll just leave it there. No, Jesus is better. You are missing out on some of the wonder and glory and beauty of life in Jesus if you just leave that there. No. Jesus is authentically and really better, and he can deliver you. Now, chances are that you're not going to be delivered in a single instant. I pray, and suddenly, boom, Jesus, sometimes Jesus does that, praise God, but that's not typically how he does it. It's through years of you fighting it alongside people who love you and care about you and want to direct you toward Jesus and you digging your life into the Word of God and you drawing from the resources of the Spirit of God and God works with you in that. That's how typically God does it. Be ready to do that. 
There's a sermon by St. Augustine in which he's, he's entertaining the idea that some people have that, that my sin is just too much and I can't ever escape from this sin. And he says this, you say God can't forgive me? I say, why not? He's God the Father Almighty. You say I've sinned too much? I say, he's almighty. You say I've committed sins that I can't escape or be delivered from. And I say, he's almighty. That's what we need him to be almighty for. Yeah, that's what we need him to be almighty for to deliver us from the sins that we can never deliver ourselves from. The last truth I want you to hear is simply Jesus is I am, abide in his words. They believed in the Jesus that they wanted, but they didn't abide in his words. And today when we look at this, we gotta hear it's not only the words Jesus spoke, but we recognize that in our Bibles, the entirety of the Old Testament leans forward with eager expectancy toward Jesus coming. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. The New Testament is all about Jesus looking back to what he had done. This book is your life. This book is your life. It is the text that God has inspired to shape you and to guide you and to guard you into all true life. Abide in Jesus. Abiding in him means abiding in his word. Find your life, your delight in the words of Scripture and let the Spirit and the Word together shape you into who God created you to be. We don't get choices on Jesus. We can't skip across the Jesus first and just get a Jesus we like and say, that's mine, that's my Jesus. No, we get the Jesus that has testified to us in his words and in the words of Scripture, or we don't truly have Jesus at all. Those are the choices. We don't get a choice of which Jesus we want. So look to the true Jesus, and he is the I am, and find your life in him. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.